0: Well, before we come to look at God's word, let me lead you in prayer and ask his help. Let's pray. Open the eyes of our understanding, Lord our God, and prepare our hearts by the power of your spirit that we may receive your word with much joy and rejoicing. And we pray that we may leave here having a deeper understanding of who you are and your grace to do your will for our lives. So we pray that we might see Jesus tonight in all his majesty and glory, in his person and work, and that through it, he alone would receive the praise. We ask in his name. Amen. We'll turn to the next passage from which... uh, we looked at uh, Laurie and read to us Jesus here heals or rises a widow's son I want you to try and imagine the scene as we read this and uh, I'll have a lot more to say of course once we do that R.C. Sproul the late R.C. Sproul from Ligonier Ministries says that if we didn't have a Bible that this passage would have enough in it to know the gospel and to know the Lord Jesus so there you go let's read Uh, Luke 7 verse 11. Soon afterward that's Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the briar, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him, that is Jesus, spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. Without a doubt, the saddest day in my life as I look back on my life, would have to be the day my seven-year-old daughter went to glory. It was a day that will stay with me in my memory for the rest of my life. As a parent, to watch helplessly as she took her last breath brought immense pain and sorrow. But at the back of my mind, I knew that I would see her again. And I'm sure you realize that being a parent not only brings responsibility, but it also brings with it many joys and pains in life. There's joy at the birth of a child and watching him or her grow and going through many learning experiences of life as they discover things for themselves and experience new relationships, learn new things, and so on. But needless to say, life also brings with it many concerns and trials as parents. Perhaps disappointments over our children in different areas of life or heartache over a serious illness or a diagnosis a child may have and so on. But I believe that as parents the pain and suffering which the death of a child brings would have to be probably the greatest devastation that life could dish out to a parent. To lose a child would be like losing a part of of yourself and more so if it's your only child. And this was the case with the mother here in our text. And we are told that this mother was also a widow. And as we examine her situation, we realized that her circumstances was desperate. Her life without her only son would be reduced to one of abject poverty and despair. Well, what was her situation? Luke is the only Gospel writer that records this incident. He tells us that this mother was a widow. She lived in Nain, about 10 kilometers southeast of Nazareth. And it's very likely um, the present day city of Nain, spelled N-E-I-N. This is the only reference we have in the Bible to this city as well. Now Luke telling us that this woman was a widow gives us some insight into her life. It says a lot. Firstly, it tells us that she very likely was poor and if you know the Gospels you realize that Luke highlights the ministry of Jesus to the poor and here he is and he's, do, he's doing ministry to her as well so this woman was poor she would have had no job because widows were unlikely to obtain work in her, in her day and time but now tragedy had struck she had lost her only son and that meant that she had also lost her only means of livelihood, her her source of support and protection had gone. And not only that, because with it also went any hope of perpetuating the family line. And Luke tells us that she was the only son of his mother and she was a widow. And Luke often points out some touching aspects to uh, what he records in the ministry of Jesus. In chapter 8, for example, he points out that Jairus' daughter was his only daughter. And so in the case of this widow, Luke wants his readers to know that this mother um, was in abject poverty, having lost her son. In fact, he places this incident after that of the centurion And I think Luke wants us to see the contrast between the centurion and this widow. The centurion, as verse 4 and 5 point out, had many good works to his credit and many resources at his disposal. The widow, on the other hand, had next to nothing. And even that which she had, she had now lost. Unlike the centurion, No one says to Jesus that this woman is worthy of his love and compassion, that she deserved to have her son rise from the dead, uh, and so on. You see, Luke wants us to see the other side of God's love because Jesus had ministered to a man who had everything in life, a man who had authority, and so on, being a centurion, and now he's about to minister to a woman who had nothing. And the point is this, that if you have many good works to your credit, if you have many resources like the centurion, for example, it makes no difference. Why? Because the Lord does not meet you in your need based on your status in life or what you may or may not possess in terms of material good. You are no better in the eyes of God than someone who may not have as much as you in status or wealth. The Lord meets us in our need as he does here with the centurion And this widow, entirely based on his grace and compassion. And we'll see that in a moment. And not because he sees anything that's worthy in us. The salvation he gives us is also because he chooses to do that and not because of any merit in us. And here Jesus seeks to meet this lady in her need. And it's not surprising that the scripture uh, stresses our obligation to show kindness to widows and to help them in their distress. And this woman was in distress. But all this is to change. It was about to change when she was about to lay her only son to rest in the grave, because now the focus shifts towards God's only son. And when he steps into the picture, Nothing can be considered to be a hopeless situation, not even the death of an only son. We are told that Jesus and his disciples were entering the town and he was being followed by a crowd. People uh, got to know about him and what he was doing, his ministry and so on. And so he always had a crowd with him and they were following him. His popularity was growing and they constantly sought after him. They wanted to hear him because his messages were different. He spoke with authority, he spoke with truth, and he spoke with graciousness. They wanted to see him. They sought him out as he, in turn, showed love and compassion towards them, especially the sick and those with needs. So notice, firstly, the divine timetable of Jesus. can have that slide up, thanks. The divine timetable, Jesus. Now why do I highlight this? I highlight it simply because of verse 12 and what we are told in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Luke says, As Jesus approached the town gate, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Jesus and the crowd were approaching the town gate, going into the city of Nain, and Luke, by writing, Behold, or look, wants his readers to fix their attention to it. I believe Luke is making a statement here. Jesus was about to enter and the funeral procession was about to leave the town gate because there was no burials allowed inside the Jewish, inside a Jewish city. And so the question I have is, was this meeting a mere coincidence? Or was it the providence of God? Was this meeting by divine appointment? I'm sure if you and I were there, we perhaps would have thought of it as being being a coincidence, wouldn't we? How often do we hear people speak of the facts and happenings in their life as mere coincidences. But that's not the case. Not if your faith is in a sovereign God who directs and guides our lives, who controls the lives of his people, That God is working in your life and in my life. He's working out his plan and purpose in our life. And here he is working in that situation with this widow. To us it may seem a coincidence, but not from God's perspective. Because all things work together for the good of those who know and love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. Both the good and the hurtful events which work out for our ultimate good. There are examples in scripture which seem to illustrate this point. Remember Ruth when she leaves in the morning to gather some of the leftovers from the field which had been harvested? The text says that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to come. Sounds like coincidence, doesn't it? But that's not the case. This field belonged to the right man, her future husband although at the time it seemed like just another happening in her life. Or to use another example, Abraham's servant. Abraham sends his servant to look for a wife, for Isaac, and he goes into Mesopotamia. He arrives in a strange country. He doesn't know what he should do next. And so he stops at the well, and he prays that God will direct him. Before his prayer is even finished, there's Rebecca. And she's come to get some water from the well. Coincidence? Not so. And it's the same here. Jesus and those who were following him were entering the city. The widow and the dead son and the crowd were leaving the city. And Luke says, behold. In other words, look. Drawing attention to the fact that this was by divine appointment. From God's point of view, all these remarkable so-called coincidences... Are part of his plan. And Jesus himself lived on a divine timetable. And here, this meeting was part of that timetable. And so, Jesus meets this procession. Uh, the mother would have been at the head of the procession, uh, followed by some men who carried the stretcher uh, on which her dead son lies. And then there would have been the people for the funeral following the stretcher, including the professional mourners. You got paid to be a mourner in those days. How would you like that for a job? To, uh, you know, to shed some crocodile tears and get money for it as well. But there were those during that time. And here now are the two crowds, they meet. So notice secondly, the compassion of Jesus or the heart of Jesus. Jesus sees this mother. Out of the crowd, which was there for the funeral, and the crowd that was following Jesus, Jesus picked on just one person. He seeks out the one with a need. He always seeks out those who are needy, those who need the touch of God, those who need his love, those who need his compassion in their lives. And that's what's happening here. It wasn't a sighting of indifference, or casual glance at her, not so. Luke says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. It's the first time in the Gospel where, Jesus, uh, where Luke calls, uh, addresses Jesus as Lord or writes down the, the fact that he is Lord. The title that translates the Old Testament word, Adonai, the sovereign one who rules with all power. Jesus was about to show that he is the Lord of life. He is the Lord over death. But notice that Jesus' heart went out to this woman. And I think that's the loveliest words in that account. The heart of Christ goes out to her before his hand and before his word. Because Luke says that he reached out, he touched the uh, stretcher, and then he speaks to the dead boy. His heart goes out to him, or out to her, before his hand or his word. Jesus was moved with compassion. Com meaning with, passion or feeling. The word compassion is literally related to the word bowels. It describes the feeling that comes from deep within a person. In other words, it was not just an intellectual sympathy. Jesus felt deeply the hurt that this woman was going through. True compassion enters into another's pain. Jesus is the man of sorrows and acquainted with, with grief. He knows the deep sense of loss that this widow was suffering, and he felt her pain, he felt her despair, he felt her intense sorrow, and his heart goes out to her. She did not go unnoticed by the Son of God, and that's a comfort for you and for me to die as well. Comforting that the Lord knows and sees our hearts. He sees our suffering. He sees our mourning. And in His love, He meets us in our need. And He is about to do that with this woman's pine. We're dealing here with the love of Christ, the love of Christ that permeates the whole of the New Testament. To, to read the New Testament is to realize the great love that Jesus had for people as he ministered to them. For example, John tells us how he loved his disciples uh, in the upper room in John 13. He says, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. His love just not, wasn't just within himself or his disciples, but he showed them, he demonstrated that love in washing their feet. Or the Apostle Paul tells us how much Jesus loves him in Galatians 2.20. He says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There you go. Again, love demonstrated. He gave himself for me. The love of Christ is not only a love established from eternity, but one that is visibly demonstrated in the cross. Love demonstrated in practical terms as well as he mixed with people and ministered to them and to their needs. Many were the lives he touched, many were the recipients of his love, like the widow here in this incident. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. One writer says, and I quote, Those of us who are recipients of his love, that our love should go out to him, should be expected that his love should go out to us is amazing and should have a decisive effect on our faith unquote. and his love does go out to us doesn't it as it, as it do, did to this woman and that should sustain you and me in our faith to know the love of God in our lives keeps us in all the troubles and the pains we go through in life to know that we are loved by God and That brings hope in the midst of despair. So notice next the word of Jesus. Jesus says to her, don't cry or do not weep. Now that seems strange, doesn't it? Perhaps even inappropriate to say to someone in such distress and such pain and such heartache, don't cry. She was the one person who had every reason to weep. And we today, we would encourage crying, would we not? Most don't believe that sorrow should be suppressed, so we would encourage people, let, let it out, let it come out. But we hear the words from Jesus, do not weep. It almost as if Jesus said the wrong thing at the wrong time, that he was lost for words, perhaps as we often are lost for words in, similar, in a similar situation. If someone has lost a loved one who is so near and dear to them. You know, we say, at times we put our foot in our mouth and say things like, I know what you're going through. We really don't know what they're going through. So we shouldn't say it. Or we shouldn't say, I feel your pain. Unless you have been through the experience yourself. And in situations like that, all you need to do is give them a hug. Or perhaps saying saying something along the lines of, I am so sorry for your loss. Um, But Jesus says to this woman, do not weep. Now neither was he rebuking her, nor asking her to be stoic in saying those words. But these are words of tenderness, giving a hint of power over grief. Because you see, only Jesus could sigh, do not weep, and at the same time remove the cause for her weeping. Otherwise such words would be hollow, even though it was well meant. What he is doing is he's calling this woman to trust in him. He's saying to her, look to me, I can turn your grief into joy, your sorrow into laughing. And he did that he walks up to the pallbearers and he touches the stretcher on which the body lay. something you would never do as a Jew. Because in touching that stretcher on which the dead body lay, it meant that Jesus was polluting himself according to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Jesus would be considered as being unclean. To do what he did was something shocking, and that's why the men sort of froze and they stop. They were carrying the stretcher and Luke tells us they stood still. They must have been shocked that someone who was a Jew would do that. But that was not to bother Jesus. He was not about to put aside meeting a human need because of some ceremonial law. Where there is a need, Jesus will meet that need. But later at Calvary he would become unclean as our sins were heaped upon him. He would take our sins upon himself and he would become unclean so that you and I who who come to him in faith could find forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And so these men stopped. They must have realized that Jesus would not have done that unless there was something important about to be said or something happen, about to happen and Jesus speaks to the dead man now that would have seemed weird wouldn't it I mean if you and I were there we'd have thought it's crazy he speaks and listening to his voice wrote Charles Wesley new life the dead receive new life spiritually and here in this case physically as well In him was life, says John, and the life was the light of men. And so Jesus speaks and he speaks with the power and the authority that he had as the son of God. That word of power which spells victory over death. Young man, I say to you, arise. And there in a manner far too mysterious for you and I to understand, his word of power brought life back into that dead boy. And we are told the young man got up and began to talk. My friends, that same word of power and authority, of course, will summon the dead at the last resurrection. We know this because this same Jesus who spoke here says to us that a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear my voice and come out. That loud voice of command With the voice of the archangels, he will summon the dead. And here that voice spoke specifically to this dead boy, and he rose to life. This is the same voice which declared, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who on the last day will raise the dead and present, for example, children to their parents, and so on. Now as I was preparing, it suddenly hit me that it would, it's strange that Jesus would speak to a dead body, doesn't it? He addresses this dead dead boy. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. In fact, on the other two occasions when he raises the dead, he does the same. Jairus' daughter, he speaks to the dead child and he says, "Talita, Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. He speaks to Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And he says, Lazarus, come out. Why? Why speak to a dead body? Seems weird. You see, he talks to them as if they're alive, doesn't he? As he does here with this young man. Why does he do that? You see, it's because their spirits are alive. The spirit is alive even though the body is dead. And so Jesus speaks to their spirits. We all have bodies and our spirits live within this body God has given us. The body is the medium by which the spirit can express itself. It's the tent in which we live, to use the words of the apostle Paul. One day our bodies will die, but our spirits will live on. And so Jesus speaks to the spirit of this boy, and he commands the spirit to come back into the body. And the spirit which is subject to Jesus obeys him. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that we know that when this earthly body is destroyed, we have an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And so we groan and we long to be clothed with this heavenly body. You see, when we die, when you die and when I die, our spirits don't die. Our spirits go to be with the Lord. When our bodies give up, our spirits go to be with Jesus. And we will remain with Jesus until he comes again to wrap up this world at which, states, at which stage our spirits will be clothed with our heavenly bodies and we will live with our new bodies in in his presence forever. And here's why Jesus speaks to this young man as if he were alive. He addresses his spirit, he commands the spirit to come back into his body. And Luke tells us that the boy sits up, he begins to talk, clear evidence of the life that came to him. And one can only Imagine the joy and the relief in this mother's heart as she witnessed what took place. Jesus gave the boy back to his mother, says Luke. In fact, he didn't just give the boy back his life because in many respects he gave the mother back her life also. He was restoring her livelihood. Her future was given back to her. Isn't this what happens when Jesus brings spiritual life, when we are dead in our sins? He restores us to life. He raises us to life. He restores us into fellowship with God. He gives us a future, doesn't he? We are guaranteed an inheritance in heaven that's kept for us, for you and I who know Jesus Christ, for you and I who are in Jesus who fight, are shielded by God's power until the coming of our salvation. And so we can rejoice, indeed we have reason to rejoice. And finally then, the identity of Jesus, verse 16 and 17, we're told that they were all filled with awe and they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. The people are a standard and rightly so. We would have been shocked if we were there and we saw a dead body come back to life. And they only knew that God can rise. And they knew that only God can raise the dead. And so they properly gave God the glory. Luke says they were all filled with awe. They're probably dumbstruck. And that's understandable. Imagine how you and I would react if we were in that situation. No doubt we would take a long while to get over the shock. And here these people attribute this miracle to the working of God through Jesus. God has come to help his people. Or God has visited his people. That was an Old Testament expression which spoke, which spoke of blessing and sometimes judgment as well. And they see Jesus as God's agent and representative. A great prophet, they said, was in their midst. They saw him as a prophet, even a great prophet, and that he was. He was a prophet. The voice of prophecy had been silent for over 400 years. And here now they recognize Jesus as the great prophet who had come. In fact, he had just done what two great prophets previously had done in the Old Testament Elijah, who raised the widow's son to life, and Elisha, who raised the son of the Shunammite. And here Jesus raises this boy, and the crowd naturally thinks that he is a great prophet, a great prophet like Elijah, perhaps. I say that because when you get to chapter 9, in reply to a question that Jesus poses to his disciples, whom do men say that I am? The disciples reply, Some say you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of long ago that has come back to life. But that's as far as the crowd's estimation of Jesus went. You see, in spite of the fact that they followed Jesus around, they heard him teach like no other, they watched him heal people, they watched him rise the dead, they failed to have a true estimation of who he is. The manner and degree uh, degree of this great miracle went beyond anything that had gone before and that alone should have opened their eyes to the fact that here was someone who was far more than a great prophet here was one who was truly God himself but they failed to see that in fact they underestimated The majesty of Jesus. What's your view of Jesus? Whom do you say that he is? Indeed whom do you believe that he is? I'm not asking you what your opinion of Jesus is but rather what convictions have you reached about him? Oswald Sanders someone who lectured me years ago in Bible college, in his book he says this, and I quote, A small man may entertain strong opinions. A great man cherishes strong convictions. Opinions only cost breath. Convictions may well cost blood. Unquote. You have a Bible in your hand, and it clearly sets out who Jesus is, You've heard it time and time again from this pulpit, if you come here regularly, and from the testimony of others. So my question is, do you believe it? Do you know him as Jesus, who's God himself? Are you convinced about his deity? Are you convinced about his lordship, about his saving work, and so on? Are you someone who says, I won't believe unless I see visible evidence of it in my life. You know, something like a miracle perhaps. Unless he reveals himself to me in some extraordinary manner, I'm not going to believe. Can I point out to you that if you don't believe in the testimony of the Gospels, the testimony of Scripture and the Gospel writers, indeed the testimony of Jesus himself, I doubt you would believe it at all. Look at the people in this incident. They still did not believe him for who he was. They saw him raise the dead, but they still did not believe in his testimony about himself. I'm thinking of also the crowd around the grave of Lazarus who'd been dead for four days. Jesus raises him from the dead and John tells us that they went away and they plotted on how to put him to death. One writer highlights this attitude by pointing out Those who do not trust Jesus' words will not trust his deeds. So if you're looking for something extraordinary to happen in order to convince you, let me say to you, it's highly likely you won't be convinced. Those who do not trust his words will not trust his deeds. If you don't believe what the scripture has to say about who Jesus is and why he came, all the supernatural evidence will not convince you. So what have you seen about the Lord Jesus from our passage as I close? This incident in the life of Jesus highlights his love and compassion to a broken world. It tells us of the hope that he brings to a hopeless world. A world that cries out for hope and peace in the midst of all the struggles and pains that we face in life. We all, both Christian and non-Christian alike, struggle with the sickness, pain and the issues that come across our path from day to day. Some of you perhaps have been through or you're going through suffering in some form or another. 19th century British preacher Joseph Parker once said, and I quote, Preach to the suffering and you will never lack a congregation. There is a broken heart in every pew unquote. This incident tells me that Jesus will meet us in the needs that we have. He brings his love and compassion to his people not to take away the pains we go through although he may choose to do that from time to time but always to grant us his grace always to grant us his compassion in the midst of it so that we can learn to trust him to lean on him and to grow in our love for him. That's the purpose and the reason behind the pains and the struggles of life. That's the hope that he brings to us. That's the message of hope and peace we share with those who don't know him. The hope of salvation and eternal life, the gospel offers to those who come to him in faith and trust. So there's been two powers at work, hasn't there, in this incident that we've been considering this evening. Two powers. First, the power of death. Death is a universal power. It is no respecter of persons. It comes to all. It is a power against which we are helpless. The widow's son was a young man, and yet he dies. Death came to him. It strikes when and where we least expect it. But not only is there the power of death in this incident, but there is also the power of Christ. He spoke and he brings this young man to life. He would rise the dead himself. He would rise from the dead himself. He would rise bodily from the grave. He would conquer death and its power. That's the power of Christ. And we have that same promise and that same hope of a resurrection from the dead. No longer does death have the final word. The same power that raised the Lord Jesus will raise your body and mine at the final resurrection. The question is, do you believe it? That's what it means to be a Christian. To be absolutely certain that Jesus, who has the power over death, will one day raise us from the dead and grant us new bodies so that we can live with him for all eternity. That was the assurance I had when I committed my daughter's body to the grave that Jesus will raise her to life and I will see her again. But you see, in there being those who are rise to life, there will also be those who are rise to face the judgment of God. Those who have rejected Jesus in this life. So let me say that the way to secure the future is to secure the present. Know Jesus in this life, and you will know him and live in his presence in total joy forever in the life to come. And the way to do that is found in the words of Jesus himself. He says, he or she who believes in me, in other words, put their faith and trust in me, though they die, yet shall they live. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord our God, we thank you for your son. We thank you that that same pair with which he raised the widow's son, that he has not lost that pair, but that pair is still available and that we can look forward to the day when he will rise us from the dead if we have gone from this life before he comes back. And so we rejoice in these wonderful truths. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus, our Saviour. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that these truths might indeed uh, remain with us, it might encourage us, and that it might spur us on to live for Christ and indeed to know him better in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen.